Well, good morning. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know that uh, on the first Sunday of the month, it's our custom to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper. And so you see before us the elements laid on the table. We'll be talking about them more towards the end of the service. But we like to think of the entire time of worship, the singing and prayer and reading and looking at the scriptures, as well as the time of communion. We, we see all of that as a way to, to uh, help prepare our hearts, to bring our hearts to God when we come to his table. Christians often talk about having a personal relationship with God. But we have to admit that it's a relationship that is very different from any other relationship that we might have in life. It's a relationship with someone whom we have never seen and who many people don't even believe exists. It's a relationship with someone who doesn't speak to us in audible words. And if we ask him a question, he doesn't come down and sit next to us on the couch and answer our questions. It's, it's nothing like the relationship that we enjoy with friends and neighbors and coworkers and Let's face it, God would be exceedingly difficult to be married to. You know, let's just say that a loved one is sick and we pray for her, that God would heal her. We may, in that situation, comfort ourselves with the, the feeling that if God doesn't heal her physically, he may grant to her the ultimate healing and take her home to be with himself. But it would be so much easier if he'd just say that to us. You know, it's the silence that we struggle with. Or as we go through life, we make decisions. And sometimes when we come to big decisions like marriage, something like that, we, we uh, just wish God would speak to us and say, she's the right one, you know, don't let her go. But he doesn't seem to do that. And so we pick the one we think is the right one and we marry her. And then she makes us very unhappy at times. Not speaking from experience, I've heard, you know, just... <laughs> As a pastor, other people have told me these things, but uh, why didn't God just tell us in the beginning she wasn't the right one? Although it may be that the right one is the wrong question. But uh, in the big questions of life, we really want God to speak to us, and it seems that he doesn't do that. He's strangely silent. So what kind of relationship is it that we're talking about when we talk about a personal relationship with God? Well, on one level, we won't delve into this, but you have to understand we can't really compare a relationship with God to a relationship on any other level that we can think of. If we relate to other human beings, we're dealing with peers who feel and think like us. Even if you say, I have a relationship with my dog, I love my dog, and my dog loves me, that I, I think is undoubtedly true for some people. But the fact is that's nothing like a relationship with God. Comparing our relationship with God like a relationship with uh, another human being or even an animal that we love is, is very inadequate. It's more like thinking of what it would mean to have a relationship with an amoeba that's floating in the cup of water on your table. So we have to understand it's in completely different categories than we usually think about. But the Bible does describe our relationship with God in very relational terms. It describes that there's real communication and there's real emotion and there's real activity that takes place in a relationship. So we ask the question, why doesn't God communicate to us in the way that we want, in the way that we feel we need? Why doesn't he answer our question and solve our problems, or at least tell us when he isn't going to, or things like that. It, 
It shouldn't surprise us, however, that because this is such an important question, it's one that everyone thinks about on some level, then God would speak to us in the Bible. And this passage is really one in which he speaks clearly about that subject. Now, the letter to the Hebrews that we're just reading the first paragraph of is um, described within the letter as a written sermon. He says at the end, bear with my brief word of exhortation. And it really is a, a sermon in the sense of it's based on some different passages that the writer goes through to demonstrate a point. And really, it's more than an exhortation. It is an urgent appeal to the readers to hold on to Jesus, hold on to him through the storms of discouragement that they are facing, through the community opposition that they are facing, the personal difficulties that is coming upon them because of their faith in Christ. And I can't imagine any more instructive theme for Christians today than those that come out of the book of Hebrews. And the letter starts with these famous words, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days in which we are now living, he has spoken to us by his son. Those words both summarize on one level the whole message of the book and they also introduce the first topic that he's going to launch into with the next verse, verse 5. God, he says, has never left us alone without a witness of himself. He hasn't left human beings on this planet just to figure out our own way as we go through. He doesn't call us just to contemplate the stars and to think, well, maybe there's someone who made them or something like that. God spoke. God reached out to us through prophets, people like Abraham, and Moses, and Aaron, and David, and others who will be mentioned in the book. But now he says in these last days, he has spoken to us finally and definitively in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really the message of the book. God has spoken his final word in Christ. Everything that follows in this paragraph, if you look at it, is simply an expansion of the words, his son. It's going to explain what is it is true about his son. And every one of these six phrases that he uses are saturated with the Old Testament. They're all drawn out of snippets of words and phrases that are used in the Psalms and the prophets. In fact, that's true of this whole book. There's no other book in the New Testament so saturated with the Old Testament except possibly the book of Revelation. Now, these are just expansions. I don't know if you look at the Bible, I want you to note them. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God after making purification for sins, and he has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. All of these words describe Jesus as God's last word to the human race. Now, the Old Testament is a book that prepares for the New Testament. It is impossible to fully grasp the message of the New Testament without an understanding of the Old Testament because the New Testament is meant to be the completion of the message that begins in the Old Testament. And the New Testament on its own explains the Old Testament, makes clear things that are only presented to us 
in shadow form in the Old Testament. So it's important that both of these things go together. But one of the ways that the Old Testament prepares for the coming of the Son of God is by the three groups of people that are given the most prominence in the Old Testament. They are called the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Those three kinds of offices, those three offices, displayed in a unique way a special relationship with God, and those three offices represented people who acted as special representatives of God in the people of God. So prophets, priests, and kings were incredibly important. Those three offices required that a person be appointed directly by God, and that a person be anointed with oil, which was a symbol of the Holy Spirit, endowing them with the power to fulfill the office. And it's those three offices that are really underlined in the first part of the book, and even in these verses, the prophet, the priest, and the king. They are like unique and special offices that foreshadowed or prepared for, pointed forward to the coming of Christ who fulfills each one of those offices perfectly. Jesus is presented in the New Testament as the final prophet, as the true priest, as the ultimate king. And that's what we want to think about for just a few minutes. How is it that Jesus is God's final word as prophet, priest, and king? Well, first, the writer tells us Jesus is the definitive, the final prophet. And before we look at how it comes out in the verses, let me just ask, what was a prophet? How did a prophet function? Well, a prophet simply was a spokesperson for someone else. He or she took a message that had been given to them and then passed it on to other people. So you can think of the the president's press secretary who has a regular briefing. They go out and what the press secretary does is they make clear to the people of the United States and around the world what the mind of the president is on specific matters. And that's exactly what a prophet did. A prophet spent time with God, and he told them what to say. He instructed them in what his thinking was, his feeling about various things, what he intended to do. And they went out and they told that to other people. We know that from reading the prophets, but we also know that in the Bible there were many more prophets. The only ones we read are called the writing prophets. They wrote down their experiences with God, the messages that they gave to other people, and so forth. Now, you can see this whole concept illustrated at the beginning of the story of the history of Israel. In the book of Exodus, God calls Moses to uh, lead Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And Moses tells God, I can't speak no good. Send somebody else. And God says, "Um, I'll empower you. And Moses says, oh, come on, God. Send somebody else. And God says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to speak to you and give you my message. You tell your brother Aaron, and here are the words in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, and Aaron shall be your prophet. In other words, all that a prophet did was he transmitted the message of another person to the people. And that basic idea of a prophet is what is carried out throughout the Old Testament. Now, I want you to look at this passage and note how there's two ways in which he underlines this idea that uh, Jesus was the final prophet. He says, first of all, through whom he created the world, in the middle of verse 2. And then the next phrase, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. These things underline the idea of him as the final prophet. Let me explain the first one, through whom he created the world. 
the special assignment of a prophet was to apply wisdom. That is, skill in thinking through problems and solving them to apply that to community. So the prophet, in the presence of God, reflected on the law of God in the Old Testament. He or she took from the law of God, and God instructed them how to then apply that to a problem that the people were facing, and the prophet went out and preached that. Wisdom was the special activity of the prophets. And um, there's a wonderful passage in the Old Testament. It's in Proverbs chapter 8, where there's this paragraph, and wisdom speaks as a person, as though it were a woman. Lady wisdom speaks. And what wisdom says in this personified paragraph is, I was with God in the beginning. When he created everything, I was guiding his thoughts and putting into action his will. And early Christians looked at that passage, which people had contemplated for centuries, and they noted that this is what Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate wisdom of God. He was the agent of creation there at the beginning, through whom also he created the world. So he's the final prophet in that he takes the wisdom of God and he makes it a reality. But then he goes on, he is also the radiance of the glory of God. And this is a profound image. If you think about the sun, S-U-N, that's in the sky, you can't look at the sun because if you look at it, it will burn your retina and destroy it because of the brilliance, the glory of the sun. But the sun sends forth or emits its rays and its rays reach all the way to us here on the earth. And the rays of the sun could not exist without the sun itself. They emanate from the sun. If the sun did not send forth its rays, the sun would be there, but it would be powerless from our perspective. It would not do anything for us. The rays of the sun are the felt expression of the existence and the power and the warmth of the sun. And the idea is that In the same way, the Son, S-O-N, of God is like that. Jesus Christ is the felt expression of God himself. His feelings for us, his thoughts about us, his will for us. And then he describes a little bit further, not only the radiance of his glory, but the exact imprint of his nature. This uses a word that's translated exact imprint. And the best thing I can do is just quote a sentence from a commentator who summarizes all this study on the meaning of this word. He wrote this. The writer used this word to convey as emphatically as he could his conviction that in Jesus Christ there had been provided a perfect, visible expression of the reality of God. God is unseen. But in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, God, a most pure spirit without body, passions, or parts, took upon himself a human body and became the visible expression of the invisible God. Just as the rays of the sun cannot be separated from it, but in fact emanate from it, in Jesus Christ we have the full expression of who God is, of what he feels about us, what he thinks about us. Do you want to know how God feels about you? You don't look inside because your feelings about yourself will shift from day to day. You look at Jesus Christ as he speaks in the Gospels and in the New Testament as he reveals the mind of God for us. That tells you how God feels about you. Do you want to know God's will for you? You look to Jesus and hear his directions for life. 
Jesus completely reveals God. He is the final prophet. They did it in pieces and snatches. What they said was true and applied to specific situations, but Jesus Christ is God's final word. And since that's true, since he is the final prophet, we must listen to him. Listen as he speaks to us in the one authoritative record of his life that is in the Bible, which is the inscripturated truth of the person of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. So Jesus completely reveals God to us as the final prophet. He is also, this passage says, the final priest. And and that subject introduces one of the main themes of the letter. One of the main themes of the letter will be that Jesus is better than Aaron. Now, Aaron was the brother of Moses, and you may know or you may not that Aaron was the uh, father of the entire priesthood in the nation of Israel. Everyone who descended from Aaron, every male, was a priest. And among the descendants of Aaron was drawn every generation a high priest. Jesus was not from that tribe. So he was not a priest in the line of Aaron. And the book is going to undertake in many ways to demonstrate that Jesus is greater. Now, the function of a priest was essentially to mediate between God and people. It says that in the book. You needn't turn to this, but in chapter 5, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of people in relation to God to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, this is something the Bible makes clear that we are not usually very clear on, and that is that after the fall, human beings can never again approach God directly. Because of the fall, we are now brought into a state of sinfulness so that there must be a mediator between God and ourselves. And the Old Testament prepares for that mediation through what it calls the priesthood. The priests, though they were sinners themselves, foreshadowed the coming of the final priest. And the priests offered sacrifice to demonstrate over and over again that a God of infinite holiness cannot be approached except through a sacrifice. So they mediated between God and worshipers. And the fact is, even now, we need a priest. But we no longer have an earthly priesthood The priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. As the final and definitive priest, he has brought a sacrifice that is complete. So where do we see that here? Well, in a few places, but I just want to focus on the words in verse 4. Having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus acts as the final mediator. His sacrifice was not just temporary. It wasn't just a picture. It wasn't a stand-in that was representing what God would do finally. It was the final, complete payment for sin. Priests in the Old Testament had to offer sacrifice again and again because they kept sinning and the people that they represented kept sinning. But Jesus, it says here, made purification for sins. And having done that, it does not ever have to be repeated It only needs to be that one sacrifice repeatedly applied to the hearts and lives of sinful people. So Jesus is not only the final prophet, he's the final mediator for sinners, the final priest, the one who offered the complete sacrifice. Do you want to know what God thinks of your sins? Again, don't look inside. You look at Jesus on the cross and you see what God thinks of your sins. God hates your sin. He abominates it so much that his son 
hung in agony on the cross. He sent the true and final priest to offer a sacrifice, not for himself, but in the place of sinners. So do you want to know if God accepts you? Well, you do the same thing. You look at Jesus on the cross. It is not only a message that shows us how much God hates and abominates our sin. It's a message that is meant to show us how much God loves us as sinners. And we can hear Jesus say, come all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Look to him and know God's forgiveness and grace and peace. Because Jesus has come not only as the final prophet, but he came as the final priest. That is the final mediation between God and human beings. And then the passage says, finally, Jesus is the final king. That's clear in the passage in many different ways. Just note uh, the first one, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Go down a little bit. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Those are things that can only be true of God. God is the one who possesses all things. He is the one who upholds the universe. He holds all things together by the word of his power. These things are only true of Jesus, are only true of God, and they're applied to Jesus. He is the final king, but it's most clearly seen in the last words in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels, excuse me, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's a quotation from a psalm. It's a rather obscure psalm. People often don't realize its significance. It's Psalm 110. People who study the Bible often note, this is my own personal conviction, it is the only truly messianic psalm in the book of Psalms. That is, it's a psalm that can only be true of the Messiah. There are other psalms that are applied to the Messiah, but they were true first on an earthly level of one of the kings in the line of David who represented and foreshadowed the Messiah. Here's one that Jesus used in the Gospels to demonstrate that the Messiah was greater than David, David's greater son. In Psalm 110, it starts with these words, the Lord, using the name of God, the Lord says to my Lord, the one who is my master, David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that is fulfilled only in Christ, David's greater son, the one to whom David, about whom David himself wrote, my Lord, he called him. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hands. If there's any one verse from the Old Testament upon which the book of Hebrews is based, which there isn't, this would be it. This verse is alluded to over and over again. And the basic idea is that God's original mandate given to the human race to rule the world under his leadership, the creation mandate and Genesis chapter 1 that says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That that was given to humanity in the beginning, we failed at, but it is ultimately fulfilled in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He fulfills this action of God in calling us to reign. Even now, he has fulfilled it having sat down at the right hand of God, he waits until that point when God puts every enemy under his feet and then he reigns completely. So in this passage, Jesus is revealed as the final prophet. He completely reveals God, definitively reveals God as the final prophet. He's the ultimate mediator between God and human beings as the true priest. He rules the universe as the rightful king. And the question is, what do we do with that? 
Well, we must listen to him, and we must trust him, and we must submit to him. That's what you do with prophets, priests, and kings. You listen and trust and submit. But what does that, what does that mean for us? Well, one thing it means is that we, we should stop demanding that God answer all our questions, solve all our problems. Let us know exactly what his plans are and how he's going to work them out. That's built into the human heart to do that. It's kind of like we have this feeling every so often, if you would just do this, whatever this is, answer my question, solve my problem, heal my mother, whatever it is, if you would do this, then I'd be willing to submit to you. But it's got to go the other way around. Jesus has already spoken. God has already spoken his final word in Jesus Christ. He has no more to say. That is meant to be enough. I had one brother... Some of you know he died of cancer in 2015. I remember when I found out that he had cancer about a year before that, I, I shared a memory that I had from childhood of my brother and me that I thought of at the point where I learned about his cancer. When I was maybe 10 years old, my brother was 15, we had two sisters, uh, we, we went on a family vacation to the Bahamas. And I know that sounds really lavish, but we went to this little rocky island that had a few, a little village on one end and four ramshackle cottages on the other end, and we stayed in one of the ramshackle cottages. And, we, and it went this way. We landed on a bigger island uh, with another family that my parents knew, and we were going to vacation with them for a week. And we were instructed to take these two rowboats that were about 15 feet long with motors on them across about a one-mile expanse to this little island that we were going to stay on. And so we got in the rowboats, and my brother got in with this other family, and my two sisters and I and our parents got in one rowboat, and we took off. Well, we had landed pretty late in the day, and we weren't five minutes away from the shore before the, the sun set, and it was an overcast day, and it was pitch black. I remember you could, you could hold your hand up in front of your eyes and not see it. There was no light except one light. They had hung a 60-watt light bulb at the end of the dock that we were aimed for. And that light bulb, you know, you're moving up and down and the waves, and, and you weren't sure you saw it sometimes, but that's what we were to head for. Well, we took off, and all of a sudden, the other boat was gone with my brother in it. My parents were afraid, I could tell. And we started yelling at the top of our lungs, you know, to, to get a hold of them and make sure they're all right, because even on a pretty calm day, the ocean moves quite a bit compared to an inland lake. And, and the, the noise of the ocean and the motors, you couldn't hear anything. So after a few minutes, we just hunkered down and made our way for that little light that was only a mile away. And finally, some 30 or more minutes later when we arrived, we found them there to our great relief. My father once told me that was the stupidest thing he ever did with his family, which is quite a confession for a little boy to hear. And um, I used that story at the time to say that's how I felt about my brother having cancer. He did not confess faith in Christ. He did not even indicate in his life that he believed in God, at least in any significant or personal way. And I felt like we were heading for our true home and I wasn't sure he was going to make it. Well, the fact is, a year later he died he died angry and feeling cheated out of a long life, and I still didn't know. I have to tell you, I don't spend my time determining people's eternal destiny. 
or spending much time even thinking about it because it's beyond my pay grade, number one. <laughs> and number two, I come from generations of people that as far as I know, have never been more than nominal Christians. I'm not aware of anyone in my past, and I can only go back three generations, but I'm not aware of anyone that had any kind of personal faith that seemed to make any difference in the way they lived from day to day. And it's like an intentional strategy that I have that I just don't spend time thinking about things that are beyond my ability to discern. But there's one thing I do know. God spoke his final word in Jesus Christ. And he spoke it to me when he called me to himself when I was 19 years old. He has completely revealed that in Jesus is the final wisdom of God, and in Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that returns my soul to God, and even now he reigns at the right hand of God as the rightful king, and God is not obligated to speak to me again and answer my questions and solve all my problems as I go through this, word, this life because he's God's final word, I can trust him. After all, he's the one who said, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Again, our gracious Father, we thank you that you have given to us the final and definitive word, the one to whom we are obligated to listen, to look, to listen, to respond. Oh, even today, for those of us who know that that is true, you invite us, you call us to come to your table and be nurtured as little children, <laughs> to take of those things that you have provided that point to us, point us to the nourishment of Christ and take them in faith. Allow that that would be our experience this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.